The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. If you can open up to the Gospel of Luke, if you have your Bible handy, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, and there is a, a divine promise from God Himself that provides stability for the believer. So I want to just welcome everybody here. I'm Pastor Cliff, one of the elders, and especially want to welcome any visitors, first time visitors maybe. It seems like every week we have someone here for the first time visiting for whatever reason. Uh, we're thankful that you're here today. If you're a first time visitor or maybe a recent visitor and you'd like to get to know us a little bit or maybe you have questions now, we would invite you after the service through the lobby, immediate left, and there's a, behind that wall there's a little library there. And I'll be in there after the service, and you can just come in, say hi, introduce yourself, ask a question, and we have a little gift we'd like to give you um, for being our guest. So thank you for being here. Also, with respect to the ministry here, we, three weeks or so out of the month, we'll have Children's Church, where at this time we'll dismiss fifth graders on down that would like to participate and be in Children's Church, where they study the Bible. The kiddos, but today we're going to, uh, there's no children's church today, is that correct? Going to get an amen, JR? So, okay, I think, well anyway, that, if I'm wrong, just leave anyway. Uh, but we're delighted to have our kids with us today. If you are here and you're in 12th grade on down, and you would like to take notes of the sermon today on the back of the bulletin, and then put your name on that, and then put it in that little basket back there with the yellow sign, then I will take those, collect those, look over your notes. See how you're doing, and then give it back to you eventually, usually with something cool, stapled or taped on it. Maybe it's edible, maybe it's not. Um, kind of like getting a surprise in the Cracker Jacks box, but this is a better prize than the Cracker Jacks box prizes, so it's just for our kiddos. Uh, glad that you are here. Uh, to bring you up to speed, this is, I think this is like week. 12 or 13 of our church merch, what God has done. Wait, can you clap in church? Yeah, it's in the Psalms, baby. Anyway, uh, it is time for celebration because it's been going so well. We thank God. There's a lot of work to do as far as the facility goes, but we, uh, God allowed this to happen. We're still celebrating, thanking Him 12, 13 weeks in it. So we are Creekside Bible Church. And we are now going to begin the study of the Gospel of Luke, the whole thing, chapter 1 to 24, the longest book in the New Testament. Thrilled to do so, and we talked to, gave an introduction last week, so if you want to get caught up, you weren't here, that sermon is available and you can get caught up. That was the introduction. Today we're going to just look at the prologue or the preface of the Gospel, which would be verses 1 through 4. And then we're just going to go sequentially week by week, just kind of a paragraph or a main section of truth at a time. And the greatest blessing of all this is, aside from the fact this is the living Word of God that we get to be interacting with, that feeds our soul, which God uses to sanctify us, also we get to see Jesus virtually every week. Jesus Christ exalted in the Holy Scriptures. That's what we need most in this life. So that's going to be a treasure. So I invite you to go ahead and look at Luke. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 as we kick off this wonderful divine account of the ministry 
of Jesus Christ. Luke, the associate of the Apostle Paul, and who was moved along by the Spirit of God to write this account, in about 60 AD, wrote the following, starting at verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so Luke gives the introduction of the prologue to his wonderful gospel account. I don't know if you noticed, that was one sentence. That's one long sentence. That is a mouthful. And in the original Greek text, it is. It's one long sentence. And we're going to go ahead and look at this one long sentence. And it's narrative, it's history. It is loaded with truth. I can't do justice to it today, but we can mine some of the most important priority truths for it so that we can understand the passage and then allow the Holy Spirit to apply those truths to our life as God intends. Before we look at the passage and just three points I want to pull from this passage for you, I've got a question for you. Got your Bible. Maybe you're like me and you've got one of those old traditional Bibles that looks like a book, not electronic. Got a Bible. If you're a Christian, you've got a Bible. Question of the day, can you trust your Bible? I mean, can you really trust it? Can you trust everything in it? Not just every book, but every word in every book. As a Christian, can you trust it? As a Christian, do you trust it? Do you have confidence when you go to the Word of God and open it up that it's free from error, it's truly accurate, it is from God, and you can read it accordingly? That's how you should read your Bible. That's not true of every Christian, though. I know plenty of Christians, actually. Sadly, some who are Bible teachers and seminary professors and Christian college professors and theologians, that's not their view of the Bible. Say the Bible is authoritative. Yes, it is the Word of God insofar as you understand it properly. But it does have a few boo-boos here and there, but they're not a big deal. It's authoritative, though, but it's not without error. So it's not 100% totally reliable. It's got errors like with respect to scientific, mathematical, or historical issues, but that's not a big deal. God's only interested in religious, theological, and spiritual truth. So... That's as far as you can trust your Bible. That's a very common view. I totally disagree with that view. Uh, I believe that the Christian is intended by God to totally trust the Bible because the Bible is his word. The Bible is scripture given by God. And Luke is a wonderful testimony to this truth. We're going to see that in the first four verses. That's kind of his purpose, really. Luke is writing to probably someone who is a Christian or has at least heard the truth, professed to know the truth, has heard at least the gospel, probably professed belief in the gospel, maybe a professing Christian. His name is Theophilus. We talked about him last week. A man of influence, maybe a man of rank, someone influential, somebody that Luke respects, looks up to. And so Luke is actually writing this initially to an audience of one. This man, whoever he is, must be an influential person. Luke cares about him. Luke may have been his pastor. Luke may have been the one that gave him the truth and evangelized him, cares for his soul. 
And there was a first embrace of the gospel. Now Luke endeavors to strengthen this Theophilus, whoever he is, in his faith. He wants him to grow. And that's fulfillment of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus said, what is the Great Commission? It's not just evangelize the world. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Well, how do you do that? By evangelizing, and then when they believe, to teach them all things that I have given you. So part of the Great Commission and making disciples is once somebody becomes a Christian for the rest of their life, it's teaching them the truths of Jesus Christ all of their day. And that's what Luke's doing with Theophilus here. He's discipling him, and he's giving him all things that Jesus had said. And in God's mind, and maybe Luke didn't necessarily know this, or Theophilus, but God knew that, yes, Luke's writing to a direct audience of one, his name is Theophilus, but God knew beyond that, Luke was writing to the entire church of Luke's day in 60 AD and following, and in the first century. And then God knew he was going to add Luke to the canon of Scripture. God knew that. This book is not just for Theophilus, it's for all people, all believers, and even unbelievers, if they hear it. And God, in His wisdom, He also knew that the audience for this book was people of all ages, in particular the church of all ages. It's for us. So today in 2019, that was God's audience as well. In the infinite mind of God, it's the treasure of the truth about Jesus Christ that God wants us to know and be blessed with as a result. Can you trust your Bible? Well, I hope we see that when Luke is done, just in the first four verses, that we can come to the conclusion with certitude, 100% certitude that God wants us to trust his word, and in particular, Luke's account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is questioned today, and even the Gospel of Luke is questioned today. Luke is questioned by unbelievers all the time, critics of the Bible. They'll go to Luke and they'll try to poke holes in it and point out so-called inconsistencies and errors. I have firsthand experience of this uh, in, on many occasions, but I'll, there's one I'll never forget 20-plus years ago. I was working at a house, I was painting a house, painting paintbrush, and I was painting for this fella, and he was a very smart guy, PhD, in rocket science, and he was actually the, one of the scientists that did stuff on the space shuttle for the astronauts, very smart astrophysicist, smart guy. But he was an atheist, nice guy. And he, I was painting his house, and we were painting together, so we had some good conversation, and he was totally open to talking about the Bible, and he was highly educated, and... So I asked him, so Joe, what's your religion? He said, yeah, I'm an atheist. He knew I was a pastor or quasi-pastor, half-pastor, half-painter. And so he knew I was a religious guy, taught the Bible, studied the Bible, believed in the Bible. And I just asked him, so what's your religion? He said, oh, I'm an atheist. Oh, okay. Can I ask you some questions? Sure, fire away. Uh, well, why don't you believe in the Bible? Ah, it's, it's full of errors. Oh, really? Give me one. Now, usually... My experience is people can't give you one, or they'll turn and run, or they'll change the subject. And Joe, smart guy, he said, yeah, I'll give you one. I'll give you more than one. One is uh, the Gospels. They contradict each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's like, really? For example, well, at the tomb, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't say the same thing about who the witnesses were at the time of the so-called resurrection. One account says there was a man there. Another account says there were two men there. That's a contradiction. Two versus one. Two does not equal one. One does not equal two, at least where I went to school. How about you? Wow. Okay, uh, and then I just had to explain him that's actually not a contradiction because the account that says one doesn't say there was only one man there. It just said, a man said. You can be with another guy and still it's true that a man said. So we went around and around. But anyway, most of his, so he fired away and all of, he's firing away all from the Gospels, all these so-called contradictions in the Gospels, some of which were from Luke. So he was attacking Luke and the integrity of Luke and trying to tell me that the Luke had errors. 
Well, he didn't convince me. I did not convince him either. But Luke is not only attacked by unbelievers, it's also attacked by believers, and that's kind of in vogue today among evangelical scholars and Bible teachers. And they do it in subtle ways, and they do it from an academic point of view, and they like to say, well, the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible is inspired, the Bible's authoritative, but yeah, it's got a few boo-boos here and there, and they actually pick on Luke. Yeah, Luke, you know... After all, Luke was an apostle, you know, right? Matthew and John, they were at least apostles. And Luke, so he wasn't an apostle. He was a Johnny-come-lately 30 years after the ministry of Christ. So he's not reliable. He's got mistakes. We've got to be honest and own up to it. Not only that, he wasn't an eyewitness. He even says he's not an eyewitness. At least Mark, even though he was an apostle, was probably an eyewitness, according to Mark 14 and tradition, which has a strong, and he was a friend of Peter. No doubt Jesus saw some of the ministry of Jesus Christ firsthand. But Luke, he's a different category, can't be trusted, and we need to be honest about the mistakes and the unreliable nature of Luke's gospel in toto. And that's, that's, sadly, that's kind of common. If you went to a Christian college today, at least most of them, not all of them, you'll hear that in your Bible class. Okay, Christians, we've got to be honest. Let's own up to the errors in our Bible. So I would say, no, let's not, because it's the Word of God. It doesn't have any errors in don't pick on Luke. And let's listen to Luke and see why he tells us his book, his gospel, can be trusted. It is completely reliable. And that's why the title of today's sermon is The Reliability of the Gospel of Luke. By reliability, I mean it has full and total integrity. It is without error, totally trustworthy, no mistakes, historical truth, mathematical truth. There aren't any errors. There are no contradictions. And right out of the gate, Luke tells us that. Let's go ahead and look at it. The three things I want to talk about regarding establishing the reliability of the gospel of Luke are just the three Ps. The people, that's verses 1 and 2. The process, that's verse 3. And the promise. So the people, the process, the promise. Just kind of hooks to hang your thought, thoughts on, as they say. Summarizing this narrative. Let's go ahead and look at it. Starting at verses 1 and 2. Just to take a look at the people involved regarding Luke writing his authoritative account. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished by us." So there's people involved in verse 1, other than Luke. They're called the many in your English translation. The many. Who, who's the many? We're going to find out in a second. Then there's other people, too. They're in verse 2. They're different than the many in verse 1. "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us," verse 2, "...just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses." And servants. So the people in verse 1 are the many that Luke is aware of. And then there's another group of people in verse 2, and they're the those. They are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Those are two different categories of people. They're not synonymous. They're not the same. So Luke wants to upfront remind us or let us know who these people are and why it matters. There's a group of folks who are aware of what's going on. They've been aware of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Some of them were around from the time that Jesus began to do his ministry. They were not apostles. They were not moved by God to write inspirational accounts. Some of these people were intrigued by the ministry of Jesus, whoever these many are in verse 1. And actually, some of them took up to actually writing stuff down. There was an oral tradition about Jesus going on being preached because the apostles were called to preach about Jesus. That's what they did. First and foremost, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they were called to preach, to proclaim. That's what they did. It was verbal 
ministry, and they had it down. They didn't make mistakes. They were eyewitnesses. They were there. They saw Jesus for three years. They witnessed his resurrection, and then they were commissioned by him to represent him orally, speaking, preaching, wherever they went, and they did that. They did it faithfully. Not only that, were they eyewitnesses, so they had the truth, but they were guaranteed to not make mistakes when they spoke in the name of the Lord because they had the Spirit of God upon them and even in them as they preached his word, the apostles and the associates of the apostles. But the many in verse 1 is not referring to those men, those apostles, those who were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Apparently, these are folks that Luke was aware of, that Theophilus was aware of, wherever Theophilus lived. We're not quite sure where Theophilus lived or where his home of residence was. But Theophilus probably put faith in Christ, was young in the faith, needed to grow, and was being subject to various accounts about Jesus and stories about Jesus because that was a huge means of communication that day through oral accounts, oral tradition, oral preaching. And so Luke probably has some concerns here. He doesn't want Theophilus to be subjected to wrong stories about Jesus. So he wants to set the record straight. That's the one thing. He wants to set the record straight. But he also wants to give a sufficient account of what's being taught and preached about Jesus. So that's the many. So the first, regarding the people that Luke is talking about, first he wants to talk about those people out there who have been hearing stories about Jesus, some of which who have, they've been writing it down, and they've been coming up with written accounts about this Jesus, about his ministry, and disseminating that truth, and it's been circulating throughout the community, who knows how far abroad, and Luke is aware of that. Theophilus is aware of it. That's why he says, inasmuch as. That's one conjunction in Greek. Inasmuch, what does that mean? Uh, another way of saying that is, as you well know, Theophilus, as you well know, there are many going around who have undertaken or put their hand to writing down written accounts about these things that have happened from the beginning, about Jesus. As you well know, there are various, even spurious accounts about the truth of Jesus out there that you can find even in writing. So you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of who these people are. And then Luke is going to cost him, contrast himself with these many people who are writing these accounts. Now, he's not outright categorically condemning those accounts. He's not outright saying they're false, don't listen to them, they're heretical. He doesn't say that. If there's any deficiency in the accounts that are written up to this time of 60 AD, the deficiency is they're not sufficient accounts. They're not complete accounts. That's what, in terms of the terminology that Luke uses, that's really the gist of what he's getting at. By the way, in just these four verses, if you're looking at the Greek text, I think there are five words that Luke uses in these first four verses you will find nowhere else in the New Testament. So it's kind of hard, and they're big words, they're complicated words, some of them are verbs, one's a participle. They're loaded terms, they're used in classical Greek, and you just kind of wait, how, whoa, how is Luke, what does Luke mean here, how's he using this? So... Uh, that's a challenge to interpreting this passage. And one of those words has to do with describing these many, these many who have undertaken to write down an account. Is he being derogatory? Is he being neutral? Is he being positive by his use of these rare words? And I think at face value, it's just, well, you know, Theophilus, starting at verse 1, you know that many have taken to write down stuff about Jesus, written accounts that are being distributed. Maybe you've come across some of those, but I want you to know, Theophilus, that uh, they aren't sufficient or adequate and that, number one, they don't tell the whole and complete story, which is what I endeavor to do to you today. And also, maybe their sources aren't as good as my sources. So that's the main truth in verse 1. So 
Be aware, Theophilus. So he's laying down his case as to why he is going to now provide a sufficient account in written form so that Theophilus can have the full picture that is reliable about the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, not just his ministry, but Luke even starts with the birth of Jesus, even before the birth of Jesus, all the way to his resurrection. So he's establishing who the people are who proposed written accounts early on, even in competition with him. Then verse 2. Then he makes a contrast with those many, his contemporaries, who have tried to write accounts about Jesus. Verse 2 is a contrast. Just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses. So the contrast is, you have those many people out there writing stuff, but we need to go to the primary sources. We need to go to the reliable sources. I have access, as Luke, to these reliable sources. These uh, sources are so reliable, they are eyewitnesses of the events. That's verse 2. So that's now, so he transitions as to the people he's talking about now in verse 2. These are, who are the eyewitnesses who are also servants of the word who were there from the beginning? No doubt this includes the apostles. That's what Luke is basically saying. I'm going to write an account that supersedes and exceeds what's already written about Jesus. And the account I'm going to give is going to be better because I have access to firsthand eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus Christ, which would include the apostles. That's who the eyewitnesses are in verse 2. So that's the people, the eyewitnesses, just as those who from the beginning. That phrase is also used in Acts to describe a qualification of an apostle. When Judas died, they had to replace him. One of the qualifications was, whoever the new man is, he has to have been around from the beginning. And specifically, it was the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. Same phrase, same author. So at a minimum, Luke is saying, these eyewitnesses have been around from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and even John the Baptist. He uses this phrase again uh, in three, verse 3, 4, where he's probably referring to the very beginning of Jesus' life, his birth, from the beginning. So I'm going to talk, so he's making this promise to Theophilus. I'm going to now talk to people who are eyewitnesses. This isn't hearsay, it's not secondhand, it's not thirdhand, it's not just oral tradition. I'm going to talk face-to-face with eyewitnesses, the apostles themselves, those that are available and still alive, and ask them what happened, the truth about Jesus and his ministry. Eyewitnesses, verse 2, and he describes the eyewitnesses who are the apostles as also they are servants of the word. So eyewitnesses and servants of the word, those aren't two different categories of people. The eyewitnesses, they were eyewitnesses first, then they became servants of the word, servants of the word of the truth, mouthpieces of the message of God. They didn't have their own message. They didn't invent their own truth. They were simply stewards who took as a mandate from God the truth of the gospel, the truth that was unchanging, and they submitted to it, and they faithfully were ambassadors of the truth, and they were ministers of it. They served the word of God. They served God by delivering it to the people. They served the people by giving them truth. They were servants. They weren't in it for themselves. They weren't in it to raise themselves up, to make money, to be prestigious, to be superstars, a Christian superstar. Look at me, I'm in the limelight. No, they were servants. They bowed a knee to Jesus. There's only one master. We exalt Christ. That's what they do. That's what a true servant does. That's what they did. They were slaves. They were servants. They were lowly. That's how Paul described himself and Peter and the other apostles. So this is the access that Luke has. This is going to set his writing apart. These other writings, they didn't have full access to the apostles. Not only 
are the eyewitnesses the apostles? I believe uh, part of the eyewitnesses are some of the women, because Luke mentions women in a way nobody else does. Luke 8. Also, he, he talks about at the beginning of his book stuff that only Mary would know, the mother of Jesus. I believe that one of the eyewitnesses that Luke talked to was probably Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she just divulged all this truth she had hidden up and treasured in her heart. And we read about it for the first time, and some of it only in the Gospel of Luke regarding the birth of Jesus and the, and the birth of John the Baptist. So those are the reliable witnesses uh, that Luke has access to that people in his day didn't, who were not called by God to write Scripture. So those are the people. Let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the process. Now, after the people, the process that Luke used that guarantees a final product that is reliable, stable, credible, trustworthy, so efficacious, it can change a life. It can change an eternal soul. So the reliable process that he lays down that was unique was in verse 3. So listen to some of the, this very specific terminology he used regarding the process by which he wrote stuff down. He didn't do it haphazard. He didn't plagiarize, which was common in the day, by the way. A lot of times those books are called uh, pseudepigrapha. They're copies of Scripture. There were a lot of liars going around. Oh, yeah, because, you know, Paul was famous and everybody knew him and everybody knew Peter. So then there were fake gospel writers. And they'd, they'd write in the name of an apostle, but they were phonies. The gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas. Copycats. So Luke makes it clear he didn't do any of that. So what was his uh, process that guaranteed the reliability of this gospel account? He actually, there are five truths. He mentions four of them that speak to or inform the process he used. And then there's an additional one on top of it. The first one that guarantees the process of reliability for Luke as he wrote this account, so we can trust his gospel, is the fact that Luke wrote an inspired account. He doesn't say it's inspired here, but it is implied because he says in verse 3, it seemed fitting for me, it seemed good to me as well. Uh, This wasn't just an emotional feeling. He felt compelled and moved, no doubt, by Almighty God to write this complete account down about Jesus Christ, his birth, and his ministry. It seemed well. It seemed good to me. It seemed fitting. I, I felt called by God. Ultimately, that's the truth. That's what happened. Whether he realized the full implications or not, but he, he's saying it is fitting, it is appropriate. I need to do this. And that's what happened. He wrote 24 chapters in our English Bible, and it turns out all 24 chapters are inspired scripture. That speaks to the process. Look at Second Peter real quick, or just listen in your Bible. As Luke was writing this historical account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He wasn't doing it in his own strength. He wasn't dependent upon solely his wisdom, his education, his insights. He wasn't solely depending only on human testimony. He was actually being moved and directed by the Spirit of God himself because Luke, what Luke wrote was Scripture. He produced the Word of God in written form. So this comment made by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 that describes how authors of the Bible wrote each book. This is true of Luke. This is part of the process. Listen to this. Luke is a gospel. Luke is scripture. Luke is prophecy in writing. Luke is the word of God. 
How did he produce that? It wasn't just himself. It was him and the Holy Spirit of God. Dual authorship. Who wrote Luke? Was it Luke? Yes. Was it God? Yes. And Peter validates it here. Peter tells us about the process. 2 Peter chapter 1. And so, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word, the written word, made more sure. The scriptures. To which you do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars arise in your hearts. Verse 2, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no book in the Bible, and that also includes Luke, is a matter of one's own interpretation. This wasn't just Luke doing his own work. He was a co-author with the Spirit of God himself. That's verse 21. For no prophecy of Scripture, the Bible, was ever made by an act of human will alone, but rather men moved by the Spirit of God, carried along by the Spirit of God. They spoke from God. That's the process. This is divine inspiration. This is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. What Luke wrote down in the end were the very thoughts of God put down in written form. You want to know what God thinks? Read the Gospel of Luke. We are finite, and we can know the infinite, thought, or the infinite thoughts of an infinite God written down. What a treasure and a gift from Him. So that's the process moved along, carried along, directed by, guided by the Spirit of God, at the same time preserving Luke's will, his volition, his personality, his choice of words, his education, his interaction with the witnesses, his awareness of what's going on in reality, his association with Paul. All of that is preserved. And the byproduct is the inspired Word of God. In addition to the process being inspired that results in a flawless written word of God, are the four things that Luke says about the process himself. It seemed fitting to me as well. Oh, by the way, when did Luke enter into the canon of Scripture? Got that question this week. That's an often, uh, how come the Bible wasn't canonized until 300 AD? Well, that's not true. My question is, when did Luke's gospel, when was it received and embraced as the word of God? The very moment he delivered it and handed it to Theophilus. That's when. Luke entered the canon when it came into Theophilus' hands and disciples in his area. They embraced it wholeheartedly. This is the Word of God. This is inspired Scripture. That was in 60 AD. Did you know that just a few years later, the Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, talks about Scripture, the authoritative Word of God? And he quotes from the Old Testament, and then he quotes from Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the Word of God. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul calls the Gospel of Luke Scripture. So already, within five years, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles himself, recognizes the Gospel of Luke as the authoritative Word of God. And then Luke goes on with these four words to describe the human element that was involved, the care that which he took. He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. So he, he wrote it with accuracy, having investigated everything carefully. That's accuracy. He had perfect understanding, says one translation. Perfect understanding. Totally accurate. He, he investigated carefully. And he was meticulous. And he guarantees that's the case. So Luke is accurate. He also says his document is fully informed, because he says, having investigated everything carefully, everything carefully, fully informed. In other words, he gathered all available data. That was the deficiency of the other 
many in verse 1 of other documents out there, they didn't have all the resources, they didn't investigate everything, they didn't have all the data and all the information, but Luke did. Going to the ends of the earth, if you will, all over Jerusalem and Palestine, hunting down eyewitnesses, everybody that he needed to get the full story. He was not copying from the Gospel of Matthew, as some would propose. He was not copying from the Gospel of Mark, as some would propose. He was talking firsthand, face-to-face with eyewitnesses as he's compiling, being led by the Spirit of God to write down his Gospel. And he's doing it with precision, accuracy, and it is fully informed as he's he's leaving no stone unturned. All things, says verse 3. So not only was it inspired, accurate, and informed, he also tells us that it was comprehensive. It included everything that needed to be known regarding the full picture and scope of Jesus' ministry from the birth of John the Baptist, the virgin birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus Christ, even new information about when he was 12 that no one else says, to his three-year ministry, to his death and resurrection and in his ascension. So his, his work is comprehensive. And this allows Theophilus to have the whole complete big picture about Jesus. Theophilus, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So Luke's account is inspired, it's accurate, it's informed, it's comprehensive, and then finally says uh, it is, it's orderly, it's in an orderly fashion. It, it, there's a logical progression to it. There's a, a very keen, educated human mind doing this, led by the mind of the Spirit of God himself, putting in an orderly fashion. It says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, primary sources, to write it out, in this book, for you in consecutive order, in an orderly manner. Some translations say in a consecutive order, almost like a chronological order. So it's orderly, but also there is some chronological presentation to it. He starts out with the birth of Jesus. It ends with the death of Jesus. That is chronological. And that was how he presented it. That was his promise. So his process is thorough. And as a result, it is reliable. So after talking about the key people involved, the process involved, finally we conclude with the divine promise to this account, what this book is going to do, what this writing is going to do. This writing is going to change lives. There is no other book, written literature on planet Earth, that literally changes lives. Many of you have been changed by the book, changed by the truth in the Bible. I know I have. I was when I was, I'll never forget it, age 19. Radical transformation by the book. The Word of God, the living Word of God, the only thing, the only truth that penetrates to the very soul of a human being, the very conscience of a human being. And so let's look at his promise. That's verse 4. I'm doing this arduous work, talking to eyewitnesses and primary sources, giving the full account of the glorious ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in all his glory for you, Theophilus, so that you might grow in your faith. And also, verse 4, Here's the promise, so that, for the purpose of, here's what's going to happen if you study and read and believe what I'm going to entrust to you, Theophilus, so that you might, says the New American Standard, get this, so that you might know the exact truth. Imagine that. Can we know exactly what happened in the life of Jesus? Yes, we can. Well, all we have is the Bible. Well, all you need is the Bible. Well, all we have is the gospel. Well, all you need is the gospel. By the way, that's not an adequate and sufficient answer. All we have is the Bible. No, we have more than the Bible. The Bible's actually sufficient enough. We have the Spirit of Almighty God and the Bible. 
The same Spirit of God who created the world out of nothing. The same Spirit of God that inspired all the rest of the Scripture. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That Spirit of God. The infinite, almighty, powerful, omniscient Spirit of God. That's what we have. You talk about sufficiency. We can know the exact truth as it is presented by Luke. That is a promise from Luke. That's a promise from God. How encouraging this had to be for Theophilus. Young in his faith, doesn't have the whole truth as far as the rest of the things that happen. He's got some, maybe some competing truths that maybe you're confusing him, causing him to stumble. He's not sure, making things foggy. And Luke's saying, you know what, man, what I'm going to give to you is going to allow you to know these. By the way, the, verse, uh, the word in verse, uh, verse 4 for know is a compound word. Gnosko is the word to know. I, I know this, I know that. And then Luke adds a preposition on the front of it, epigonosco. Not just know, really know. Totally know, certainly know. To know assuredly, to know with certainty. Absolute certitude. It's emphatic. That's why this translation rightly says, so that you will know the exact truth. One, uh, the ESV says, so that you will have certainty. We talked about that last Can we have certainty about the Bible and about Jesus? Absolutely. 100% certainty, unquestionable certainty, absolute assurance and certitude about spiritual truth. That's what Luke says, that's the promise, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been catechized in. Catechism, he's already been taught, that's the word for taught, catechized. He's been taught spiritual truth. He uses a medical term in verse 4. It's kind of cool. Uh, verse 3, is it acrobos? Carefully, acrobos. Uh, verse 3, carefully, carefully, acrobos. Uh, and then he uses another one for uh, the things you have seen, eyewitness, autopsy, autopsy. He's resorting to autopsies, eyewitnesses. That's what autopsy means. Luke's a medical doctor. But anyway, we have certainty from... Now, the reason that Luke could, and I want to close with this, the reason Luke is making this promise that if Theophilus reads what Luke gives him, he can have absolute certainty and know the exact truth is because this, is, this literature is of a different nature. It's inspired by Almighty God. It is the Holy Scripture. And the Bible is clear. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Oh, I have doubts, Pastor. Okay, then you need some certainty. You need some certainty. If you've got doubts, you need certitude. You need some faith. Faith is the opposite of doubt. You need faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from only one place, one source, one thing. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You're not going to grow in your faith, stabilize your faith, if you're, you don't have your nose in the Bible. That's the only place it comes from. That is the only resource that the Spirit of God will use to increase your faith. That's, the prompt. That's what Luke is saying. Theophilus, you're going to grow in your faith, you're going to have faith, you're going to have certitude because I am giving you divine revelation in the form of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to stabilize your life. It's going to give you certitude. You're going to grow in your faith. That's what the Bible does. Romans 15.4 says the same thing. These things were written so that we might, the Scriptures were given to us as a gift, so that we might increase or grow in our hope. What is the opposite of doubt? Hope. What is the opposite of doubt? Faith. Faith and hope come only from the Bible. Knowing the Bible, being exposed to Scripture, and then the Spirit of God uses that to increase our faith, to grow our faith, to give us certitude, to give us stability in life.
What a wonderful promise. That promise is true for every person here this morning. You're struggling with something? You got doubts? Have you been in the Word? Are you leaning on God and His Word? Are you letting the Spirit of God feed your soul with the Word? Let me close with this. Based on this truth, I want to encourage you with these axiomatic truths. You don't need to write them down. There's too many. But it's based on this truth that Scripture says that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Truth is certain. Yes? Truth is certain. If you need certitude, it's in truth. Truth is certain. But truth must be believed. Scripture is truth. Scripture must be believed. You must be exposed to Scripture and understand Scripture in order to believe it. There is no certainty apart from Scripture. If you believe Scripture, you will have certainty. Putting faith in scriptural truth brings certainty. Having certainty removes doubt. The Holy Spirit enables one to believe Scripture. The Holy Spirit brings certainty through Scripture. The Holy Spirit does not provide certainty apart from Scripture. Therefore, read your Bible. It's a promise from God. He'll increase our faith. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank Him for our time. Father, we do thank You for our time together and our time of worship, our time to fellowship with the saints, our time to give to You, to sing to You, to praise You, to learn from Your Word. Thank You for these just fantastic, timeless, encouraging words from Luke, from the Word of God, that we can trust our Bible. We can't question the Bible. To question the Bible is to question you, God, and we, we just want to rest in its, its truth. Thank you for feeding our souls with it and helping us grow and even saving us with the truth of your word. We pray that you are glorified in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.